Welcome to another episode of the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a wonderful weekend. I am still on the road this week as I've made it back to North America after a wonderful, not quite a week in Europe, uh, working with the American International School of Vienna. I absolutely love getting back to international work and international travel. To work hard, but to also be in a new and exciting place around the world is something I am truly grateful for, seriously. It's, you know, it's the old European architecture, it's the food, it's the culture, it's the history, uh, it's all of it. It's, it's a part of my work that never gets old and certainly one I will never take for granted. I also want to say, don't sleep on Turkish Airlines, okay? That's the first time I've flown Turkish Airlines and I found a really good fare with them. I did have to fly through Istanbul to get to Vienna, but I have to tell you, I was really impressed. It's funny, you know, when I travel overseas, I feel like I turn into a 12-year-old kid. Um, just the wonderment of it all and, and traveling around the world. Now, this week, I'm in Arkansas working with Watson Elementary School here in Little Rock. And then I finished the week at Crossit High School in Crossit before finally heading home on Saturday. A reminder that uh, Grading from the Inside Out two-day training in Minneapolis, there's still time to register for that. That'll be December 1st and 2nd. Uh, link in the show notes for that event if you want to check it out. So thanks for tuning in again this week. Uh, big welcome, of course, to new listeners joining in for the first time, and a big thank you to longtime listeners. I appreciate each and every one of you. This week, my guest is Eric Sable. Eric is a co-founder of something called Global School Play Day. So that is going to be the focus of our conversation this week. And in Assessment Corner, I'm going to explain what has me rethinking group grades and why. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Eric Sable is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week by saying that when it comes to student engagement, or the lack thereof, we only have two choices. We either throw up our hands and give up, or we can do everything we can to create a more engaging experience for our learners. Now, for a while, whether it be in, in workshops or coaching sessions or whatever setting I'm in, I am continually hearing from teachers everywhere that there seems to be an increase in student apathy towards school. I have no data to support that or data to dispute that, so I'm not going to discredit anything any teacher tells me about what they're experiencing. And I am empathetic to how hard it can be and how hard it feels when it appears as if students simply don't care. And so while student apathy is not a new phenomenon, what teachers are really telling me is that it's more that more students than ever are displaying apathetic tendencies than they can remember. I think the easiest thing for us to do in those situations is to turn on the students and blame them by asserting that, you know, they just don't care anymore. And I suppose that could be true for some students, but they're not a monolith. But that can't be true of all students or the majority, can it? When you step back for a moment and you think about the concept of school, it is on one level quite amazing that as many kids are as motivated and engaged as they are. Like, think about it. We force them to go to school every day. And then we put it on them to be engaged with what we're doing. Would that work for you? Like, what if I forced you to become a heavy-duty mechanic? And then I told you it's on you to find your motivation and get engaged. I actually don't think that would work for most of us. So maybe as adults, we need to take a disproportionate amount of responsibility for student engagement. Like I said, we, we could just look at the students, the widespread apathy, and just throw up our hands and lament that kids today or post-COVID and just blame the students and lament the state of our experiences. I have no confirmation that this issue is widespread, but if I'm just taking teachers at their word, I have to say I've heard it from teachers all over in a wide variety of places. So there has to be something to it. So we can just throw up our hands and give up, or we can try to gain some perspective and do everything we can to take us off the table as yet one more reason students disengage. Is it true that students are less engaged than they were pre-COVID? I have no idea. I don't know. But it'd be would, it, would it really be that surprising if they were or are? Like, what do we expect? That we got back to school and students were just going to snap back into their February of 2020 dispositions with no residual effect? 
While COVID is still around, I, you know, I think we can say that the pandemic, I think we can safely say that the pandemic is over or almost over or whatever. And look, don't at me and send me a message. Well, actually, Tom, uh, technically, a panda, I, I, I don't, you know what I'm saying. We're past it by and large. COVID is still here. It's probably going to be around for a while. I got it. But life is definitely very different than it was in 2020 or 2021. Okay, so I don't need the uh, three-page um, dissertation about the technicalities of a pandemic. COVID has been probably for everyone a fairly traumatic event. And I think you could argue that maybe it's been more traumatic for adolescents and children for two reasons. First, they're not adults. They don't have adult brains. And they may not have the maturity and the perspective to process what's happened like adults do. And even some adults have struggled with it. Now, I know you can point out the exception to the rule, the adolescent who processes better than some adults you know. I know those exist. I get it. But generally speaking, the, the adults tend to have better perspective on things than adolescents do or children do. And second, for the most part, what happened in 2020 or 2021 was done to them with very little input from students or from young people. So is it possible that this widespread apathy is actually a very normal response to the trauma that was and maybe still is COVID. Instead of apathy, what if I said, based on what happened to them during COVID, students have become cynical and, and disillusioned with life? Kind of sounds different, doesn't it? Rather than calling them apathetic, like they don't care, what if we looked at them and said, the residual effect is they've become disillusioned with life? If I told you that a student was feeling hopeless and had become, like I said, disillusioned with the prospect of their future, would you just point the finger at them and assert that they are less than previous generations of students? What if the so-called apathy is that? What if they have simply lost their hopefulness about life? What if that youthful energy and optimism has been extinguished. Wouldn't we take the initial responsibility for reigniting that spark? I think we would. Now, to be clear, I don't know if that's why students are reacting the way they're reacting, but I suspect that it is. Too many teachers in too many places are saying the exact same thing. So either they're was a coordination amongst teens, the likes of which we have never seen. Or this is a much more primal kind of response and represents a natural physiological and maybe psychological reaction to what was a traumatic event during the pandemic. I know anger and frustration is not the answer. Is, is this what you would want? Imagine you've become disillusioned with the profession, and I'm sure several of you out there don't have to imagine, as maybe you are feeling that. But imagine you've become disillusioned with the profession of teaching. What would you want? Would you want your colleagues and the public to be angry with you? Would you want people to feel disdain and think you were less than as a human being or as a professional? Boy, these teachers today, they're not like the teachers from the days gone by. They just don't seem to care. How does that sound? Doesn't sound very good, does it? I wouldn't want anyone saying that to you. I wouldn't want anyone saying that to any teacher. Especially if they felt discouraged or disillusioned about the profession and what lies ahead for them. So why do we think that about students? Why do we think that's okay to think about students? Well, it's not. Maybe we can take some responsibility for recalibrating the level of engagement in what we do. And I'm not saying the lack of engagement is our fault per se, because it's not. It is what it is. But as the only adults in the room, isn't it incumbent upon us to at least take the lead and try to re-engage students in a meaningful way? Maybe ask them, hey, you know, I'm noticing a lack of engagement. What's going on? Like, talk to me. Tell me what we need to do to kind of reignite that. See them. Ask them, listen to them, empathize with them. 
Take a fresh look at everything you do and ask, is this still relevant? Is it still engaging? Is it still inviting? Does it spark curiosity? Is it relatively interesting? This is not a blame thing. This is not about saying it's teacher's fault or anything like that. It's a reaction thing. Maybe students are still in the COVID haze, or maybe they have lost the luster for school or the luster for life in general. Maybe. I don't know that to be true, but what I do know is that throwing up our hands and giving up is not an option. We have to do everything we can to re-engage students, to reignite their love of learning, or at the very least, reignite their level of self-respect where they fully invest in whatever it is they're expected to learn. If students truly don't care about school anymore, then the last thing they need is all of the adults in their lives secretly or overtly thinking that they are less than for feeling something one would expect to be completely normal after what we've all experienced over the past two and a half years. Joining me this week is Eric Sable. Eric has been a California public school educator for 25 years, 16 years as a high school Spanish teacher and assistant principal, six years as a middle school assistant principal and principal of a California distinguished and ESEA national distinguished school. He is currently the director of student services of a K-8 district in Marin County, California. Uh, Eric also co-founded Global School Play Day in 2015, along with Scott and Tim Bedley, and that is going to be the focus of our conversation today. I'm really excited about that. Eric is also a contributing writer to Edutopia and Ed Week. So Eric, uh, I want to welcome you to the podcast. So great to be here, Tom. Really great to see you again. It's been a while since we uh, last ran into each other. Yeah, we were reminiscing before hitting record about uh, my my time, a couple of workshops I did in Marin County back in, I think, 2015, 2014, 2015, and uh, we had met there. You were at the middle school, and you were a champion for grading reform and all of the work that we were talking about back then, and um, certainly been following you on social media. I know we've been connected that way, but haven't had a conversation in a long time, so uh, really excited to reconnect with you and and excited to have you on the podcast for sure. But uh, And before we dig into... Uh, you know, getting into the conversation about global school uh, play day. Uh, tell us a little bit more. I, I gave some of the highlights, Eric, but tell us a little bit more about the journey of your career so far. Where, where, you know, where did you start your teaching career? Some of the schools, the roles you've had, the positions you've had, the professional pathway. Highlight for us the journey so far. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, and just on behalf of the whole global school play day team, super excited to be here to, uh, to talk about this movement, uh, this idea, uh, and this, you know, growing reality uh, around the world. Um, personally, I'm from a family of educators and public servants, uh, both sides of the family. Um, mother's a teacher. Um, one of my aunts was also a teacher, uh, the other aunt a speech language pathologist. Um, and uh, so, you know, it's kind of uh, in the blood. And um, I uh, started as a Spanish teacher uh, over here in Marin County. Um, 25 years ago, uh, which is crazy to say, um, and uh, then um, got really interested in uh, kind of the bigger picture operation um, of a school site, honestly really being interested in, in how I could feel more connected to, to colleagues, um, started to uh, get into some sort of pseudo leadership roles, and then uh, uh, moved into an administrative role, assistant principal. Um, also uh, at, a, at a high school in Marin County, um, and I was there for six and a half years. Um, and then um, that was uh, 16 years in, and it was kind of an inflection point. I, I felt like I had really learned everything that there kind of was to learn and do in high school. Um, I had two young children of my own, uh, second grade and preschool, um, who were attending um, uh, my local district. Um, and so uh, I really liked what I saw there. I liked um, what I saw in terms of the, the culture of learning, um, what the kids were experiencing um, in terms of what I really felt was a, a holistic approach to learning. Um, so I applied for a job there and uh, became an assistant principal at the middle school. Um, and that's when we met, actually. Uh, that was my first year there. Eventually, I became principal of that school. Um, uh, and I was there for six years total. Um, and, uh, now I'm in my third year, uh, as director of student services, 
um, for a K-8 school district um, also in Marin County. And primarily my role uh, oversees all of our special education programs, also English language learner support, um, wellness, health, safety, lots of other stuff. It's kind of the kitchen sink of, of, of jobs. But one thing that um, I still cherish and value, I still have very close connections um, across the three different school districts that I've worked in um, and uh, really working to um, amplify uh, best ideas um, to benefit all kids, regardless of where they go to school. It's a big job, director of student services. That usually is one of those catch-alls, and uh, you know, special education, English language learners. Uh, it, it is, it's a, a daunting task at at, at times, and certainly uh, a challenging role for sure. But I, one I know that you are you are up for. Um, so right around the time that I was in Marin County, around 2014, 2015, you co-founded along with Scott and Tim, as I mentioned in the intro, um, you, you co-founded Global School Play Day. So, so what is that? Tell us, tell us what that is, uh, Eric. What is Global School Play Day? Oh, thank you. So you know, Global School Play Day at its core is a thought experiment. It's, it simply says, what if we dedicate one school day, and around here it's 180 days around the world, it could be a different combination of days. It could be more, it could be less. Regardless, what if we dedicate one day out of the school year to student-driven, student-chosen, unstructured play activities? What would happen? Um, and and the, the genesis of that came out of a TED Talk given by Dr. Peter Gray, um, who is uh, at Boston College. And, um, you know, I've learned about that through a, a fellow uh, colleague administrator um, who had attended a conference in San Francisco back in 2014 uh, integrated SF and uh, Dr. Gray was the keynote and I didn't attend the conference sadly but I, I heard about it secondhand and you know Scott Bedley and I were connected uh, via social media so we were chatting back and forth about different topics um, and so I just kind of mentioned this like hey this sounds super interesting um, and you know, he uh, kind of thought about it, talked with his brother, Tim. The two of them have a, an awesome podcast themselves called the Bedley Brothers. Um, and it was from their conversation um, where sort of this idea came about. Um, what if we dedicated one day out of the school year to unstructured play? And, and that was probably December-ish of, of 2014. Um, and we said, hey, you know what? Uh, let's pick a date. Um, first Wednesday of February sounds good because there's no school testing there's no holiday um that that we know of um it's kind of the midpoint of the school year so a great time to sort of maybe do something different we thought uh and we, we put up a twitter uh, handle um got out the message on facebook it was really shoestring um and we thought hey we think if a thousand kids participate we're going to be so excited and that first year uh, 2015, there was over 65,000 children that participated across six continents. And wow. we were stunned. And also it was this incredible insight into uh, just how compelling an idea this is. Um, commonsensical in one way, but also to also contrarian to the pathway that we see uh, education going in terms of more, more, more. Um, more instruction, more testing, et cetera. Um, so uh, in a nutshell, it's just a simple question. What if you hand over those minutes of one school day to the kids? What'll happen? You said first Wednesday in February? That's exactly right. Um, yeah. Spoken like a true Californian. Uh, do you understand, Eric, that in the, the rest of the country, that uh, February, it's really cold? <laughs> Hey, listen. So, so if you're wanting unstructured play, it's going to be stuffed inside as opposed to outside. Well, you know what, Tom? The amazing thing is, um, just and, no, no, this, this, you're, <laughs> but you're actually right, right on the money. Um, one of the most magical things about watching the day emerge over the years, and I invite um, your guests to to go search uh, on Twitter or Instagram the hashtag. GSPD and then the year 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, et cetera, mm -hmm. to uh, get 
um, a, a glimpse from all over the world, um, images of kids uh, and staff um, at play. And we get uh, kiddos in Australia and New Zealand um, and it's summer down there and they're on water slides. And then you get the kiddos up in Minnesota and further north um, and they're, <laughs> and they're uh, out in the snow. It's very powerful. Yeah. And, um, and to date, you know, I don't think uh, cold temperatures have ever stopped anyone from no. participating. I can't imagine they would because if you're in Minnesota or Canada or wherever you are, you're used to it for sure. But I thought I'd give you a little uh, little teasing there about the, uh, oh, yeah, February's fine. Yeah, in California, it's fine, Eric. <laughs> well, All right. that's, that's deserved. Yeah, it's fair enough. But you are in Northern California, so it's not like you're in San Diego or anything like that. So it no, does get it does get cold where, up there. That too. is where my friends, uh, Tim and Scott Bedley, are are from and where they they live and and teach down in there you go there you go so that explains it all (laughs) (laughs) all right so you mentioned peter gray's tedx talk uh the decline of play and uh and listeners i'll put a link in the show notes for that ted talk as well on youtube uh really really good talk but let's let's dig in a little bit here now i think you know you've 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 made the case for let's let's create a day of unstructured play Let's make room for it. But the question would be, why? What was the main message? What's the research telling us? What was Peter Gray's main message in that TED Talk? And and what was it about that that resonated, that either the talk or the conference? What was it particularly that resonated with you, with Scott, with Tim? Like, what really caught your attention? It's a really powerful TED Talk. And, and for any educator or parent uh, or any curious person listening right now, I highly recommend that you look it up on YouTube, The Decline of Play uh, by Dr. Peter Gray. And he has other TED Talks too. I'd start with that one. And, you know, he reflects on his own childhood and uh, what life was like, you know, after school uh, wasn't going to uh, a scheduled event or a structured activity. There was just freedom to roam um, and explore and discover and that more and more as we see our children's lives scheduled um, and managed, um, that we see uh, uh, serious uh, impacts to um, their health, to their, their well-being, um, to their capacity uh, to be creative, um, to have agency, um, to be resilient. Um, and I think that all we're seeing and learning um, on a national and global scale, um, not just from the pandemic, um, because we saw these things happening pre-pandemic as well. The U.S. Surgeon General uh, declared a mental health crisis for uh, adolescents um, in this country. Um, and I would argue that that's uh, probably the case, too, in a lot of other places around the world. So, um, So Dr. Gray's main point is that there at some point, um, uh, you know, 50, 60 years ago, there was seemingly this sort of rupture in thinking and education that anything play uh, or associated with play is somehow not uh, pertinent to learning. Play is separate from learning. Um, And that anything that is learning must be directed by an adult. Um, That's official learning and that things like recess uh, or lunch, those are the, you know, those, that's the time you're not learning. Those are sort of like the rewards. Um, And so uh, it's a really compelling talk. um, And I think that it really gets uh, to the heart of how is it that we are helping our children uh, grow and develop in ways that biology demands um, because he also uh, looks to the natural world and, and how all mammals um, grow and develop, you know, like lion kittens. We like watching videos of those on our social media feed. What are they doing? They're playing, they're wrestling. You know what? Our children are exactly the same. Um, so, so really that's the, the premise. That's the foundation of it. And, and I'll say that I learned about it at a really interesting time in my life which was moving from a high school setting where, you know, you're working with young adults and, and a lot of kids that are on their uh, way to college. Um, and it's, it's a little bit different. They, they still 
benefit from unstructured time. Um, they still enjoy playing, but um, it's it presents a little differently. I had just started a job at a middle school where kids all day are running and jumping and, and playing before school, recess, lunch, after school. Um, there's just a need for movement. There's a need to uh, go out and just be free. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that hit me. Um, and I know that it was uh, also true for Tim and Scott, who are elementary school teachers. Um, and to, to understand that we also have the power um, and the ability to create that time and space for kids um, at school um, in a safe environment where the kids would have supervision um, uh, was something within our grasp that, that all of us can uh, collectively uh, enact no, free of charge, no membership fees, no subscription to any curricula. So yeah, that was, that really was the genesis. Is it, let me clarify, is it, is it the case that unstructured play satisfies something sort of primal in us in that it is something physiological and it is our instinct to to seek that out and when we restrict that we are in a a different mindset which will impact learning or is it that the unstructured play i don't know if i'm framing this the right way but does the unstructured play create something within us that is is absent do you know what i'm trying to get at here mm-hmm. like is there like i'm looking at it from one of two ways if we are not given the opportunity to to have those unstructured moments and that that unstructured play as young people, are we blocking something? Or does the unstructured play create something within us that allows us to be? I know it probably say you know two sides of the same coin, but just drill down a little bit. What is it about that unstructured time that that um, has an impact on student learning and student achievement? I, I love the that question, and absolutely, it's it's connected. Uh, what I, to paraphrase Dr. Gray, uh, play is the original learning methodology. Play is learning. Play is an expression uh, of how mammals and there's non-mammals too that also right. Right. Are, are out playing. Um, how we learn, grow, and develop. Um, and uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman of Stanford um, on his podcast was recently uh, really going deep on this idea of play and that it's uh, the most powerful portal to plasticity, neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a, a direct quote. I mean, and that's not just true for for uh, for children. It's also true um, across all ages. Um, and so, so what play is, is that fundamental biological drive to connect, explore, take risks, um, uh, learn where the danger is, uh, learn who your community is, become confident, just the physical skills too, the gross fine motor, um, all that thing, lighting up the, the brain, um, you know, and in so many different ways. Uh, so, so the the benefits of it again are the are biological, um, and yes, I think that also too for sure it 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 does also value add um, to any scenario. I would say in the educational context, which is of course where we're primarily focused, all being educators. Um, we're making the argument that when you provide the time and space um, for unstructured play, children will learn more. Children will behave better. Children will uh, have better relationships with each other. They'll learn how to resolve their conflicts. They'll become more creative because they're tapping into that deeply biological uh, impetus uh, to play, to explore. And, uh, and again, you know, there's, there's plenty of different uh, schools um, that have uh, adopted um, play-based methodologies. Um, and also too, let's look at the big tech giants uh, right here in the Bay Area um, that set up their faculty lounges with ping pong tables and volleyball courts um, and all kinds of different recreational activities. That's not by accident. That's not for show. 
They want people to be relaxing and uh, getting exercise um, and socializing with each other, um, you know, across departments and new ways, creating connections. They get it. They're understanding this. And, and it's weird to me that schools are having to kind of play catch up on this. You can see how restricting these opportunities for unstructured play when you when you mentioned, you know, behaviorally, if this is our instinct as human beings and we restrict those opportunities for young people, it's going to manifest, it's going to bubble over into class. They are going to seek those playful moments, those those moments that are unstructured even within the structured classroom. And that's where you get into the quote unquote poor behavior or the classroom management and, and teachers becoming frustrated. Uh, with with the way children are behaving, and yet it is their instinct. It's their physiological instinct. So you can see how that might manifest itself in a classroom. But, I, you know, some, uh, some educators and, uh, you know, what I see, you know, I start to look at this and I say, this is probably one of the unfortunate downsides of the standards movement, right? So on the upside, standards made it very crystal clear what it is we want students to learn and be able to do. And I think that's a very important evolution of education, um, not just around the, you know, North America, but around the world. But one of the downsides is we can get into this mindset that if we're not every second of the day is not dedicated to meeting one of the standards in the, in the curriculum, then, then we are distracted or, or we're, we're, we're losing focus. And so some educators, and I would probably say this maybe even more so with families and parents, they're uncomfortable with this notion of unstructured play. They that you know they have this mindset that, like I said, every second matters and and every second should be planned and purposefully executed. And yet, as you've made the case for in Peter Gray's talk and all the research that is out there, says that unstructured play, especially at an early age, as kids are developing in very early stages, is how students develop their self-regulatory skills. This is how kids become self-regulatory. The self-regulation of, for example, making up a game and making up your own rules and, and playing that game. So how do we change their minds? Like, how do we make the case? Those who are so adamant that every second needs to be accounted for, what are the ways that we can begin to help parents, families, even some educators understand, maybe lawmakers understand that this unstructured time is actually an important part of a child's development. Yeah, that's a, it's, a, it's such a great question. Uh, first of all, educators are under tremendous pressure. No doubt. Um, they have been. And actually, when I started my career a quarter century ago, uh, there was talk in California about the teacher shortage. And, and we see it and hear about it now. I um, mean, in my role, uh, trying to hire people is incredibly challenging. Um, education has so much work to do in terms of the social investment. Um, and, and I would say we're really at a teetering point um, here in the United States, which is, uh, which is really upsetting um, and troubling for uh, all of us who uh, see this as a fundamental part of our society and our democracy. Um, so as you said, incredible pressure to support all children in um, progressing uh, on the standards to um, be college ready. You know, even if, and there's a, a lot of renewed interest in the trades, which is great, um, but we wanna make sure that all kids have options. We wanna make sure that every kid can go to a four-year college um, once out of high school if they want to. Um, that's huge pressure on educators. Um, but at the same time, educators are also under immense pressure to ensure the wellness and well-being of every child. And now there's a, an increased awareness, thankfully, about it. It didn't take the pandemic to teach us that, but it definitely reinforced it. Um, and, and so now there's also an investment in the wellness piece. In fact, in, here in California, our state superintendent of instruction, Tony Thurmond, announced a, a, a an initiative to get 10,000 mental health workers in the schools, um, which I, I fully support. Um, now, but when it comes to this idea of play, now we could throw all the research, uh, piles and piles of it, decades of it, TED Talk after TED Talk. Um, but we know that, you know, for human beings in general, um, the most effective way for, for them to um, really commit to something isn't hearing about it or reading something. It's doing it. It's experiencing it. It's seeing it with their own eyes. 
Um, so there has to be some action before belief. And, and in the case of Global School Play Day, it's gonna take those leaders. It's gonna take those people out on the vanguard. It might be a classroom teacher that says, I love this idea and we're gonna do this. Um, sometimes we've seen it be a school principal um, or superintendents who have jumped right on board and said, we're doing this as a district. Also too, and I'm talking to all the parents out there, parents have been that change agent. They've been the ones to advocate to their school leadership, their district leadership, their school boards. Um, they're the ones that have done the organizing behind the scenes to get this going. So, so what we see is this tremendous opportunity for schools to try it out and to learn from those educators around the world. And Global School Play Day has taken place in over 75 nations um, since 2015. Um, that's that's a tremendous uh, body of evidence to show that we should at least try this. Now, let me um, just real quick make a point. Now, when we launched Global School Play Day, I was an administrator at, uh, at the middle school. And, and I didn't want to rule by decree and say, we're, we're all doing this all day, no matter what. It was an invitation. And we had some staff members jump right on board. Mm -hmm and get into it and others that, you know, weren't necessarily so into it, or, you know, instead of doing it on Wednesday, we're going to have some time on a Friday. You know what? We're just going to, we're going to build this as we go. Um, because ultimately what we want is for people to commit and believe in this. And it was year six that we finally got to that tipping point where we said, you know what, as, as a school, we can't be, uh, we can't make an argument that one classroom is going to do this all day and then the one down the hallway is going to do it for an hour um, because who does that affect that affects the kids um, and i'd say by extension it affects us as a as a team of adults as well mm -hmm. so it took six years in the place where i was in charge um, to see that come full circle for us to dedicate an entire day to unstructured play and let me say this um, for those folks that have concerns about, let's say, behavior issues or students being out of control or students getting bored and getting destructive. We had fewer disciplinary incidents uh, on our all day of play. This was back in 2020, right before the pandemic hit. Uh, then a typical day in middle school and you know middle school it, it's oh yeah it could happen <laughs> um, you know it can it can be a wild ride sometimes. Um, sure. Our day of unstructured play was uh, kids were more um, plugged in and uh, you know um, and, and exhibiting positive behaviors um, than again on a, on a normal school day. So um, so again, I just want to emphasize with all the pressures facing educators, we're making an argument that global school play day, that an idea like this is a way to address the whole human being. It's a way to bring a school community together. And it's a way for the adults to take care of themselves too, because they also have a great time. Yeah, that's, the, you know, you can see the residual effect for, for the educators as well. You brought up parents and families and, and being some of the strongest advocates for uh, Global School Play Day. But I also uh, want to talk a little bit about the other side. So uh, let's finish up by talking about two two things. Uh, first, I want to talk about families. Uh, and, and when you drill down to the issue with parents and families and maybe their perspective at home, do you think that there's a challenge for parents and families who are, are in the habit of overscheduling their kids, that, that, um, that they, they almost turn any ounce of free time into a structured time that is, you know, you have to go to karate and then you've got to go to piano lessons and then you got to go to dance or you got to go to volleyball or you got to like, we've got our kids so overscheduled. I'm wondering from your perspective and, and, you know, as a, as an educator, someone who is a parent himself as a father, but also just from your perspective as an educator, why do you think that is, what is your 
theory, why, why do parents tend to at times, not, and again, not all of them, but why do parents and families tend to overschedule their kids? Like, what is the reason for that? And, and why are parents and families so uncomfortable with unstructured time at home that, and that opportunity to play at home or play outside or to sort of get into what I'm suspecting you and I experienced when we were younger? What is it do you think that's getting in the way? What, what are the pressures? What are the mindsets? What do you think is happening there with families? We're going to talk about the schools in a minute, but let's talk about families. Why do you think that is? Why are they overscheduling their kids? Well, first of all, I'm not going to point any fingers. I'll look in the mirror first <laughs> and just reflect on, you know, my my own kids who, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's sports um, or music um, or other uh, activities, community-based activities, um, structured activities, absolutely they've been involved in that um you know i've coached them for for some of that um and and all of those things and and i know that uh that my teammates uh, tim and scott um would also agree that if a kid is involved in youth soccer um you know if they're doing music there's tremendous benefit to that you know kids are learning um they're expanding their capacity uh, artistically, intellectually, physically um, in, in doing those different things. They, they have tremendous value. And none of us is arguing that those things don't have value. The same thing with technology. We say Global School Play Day, put the tech aside. We believe in technology is how we met. We met via social media. Um, it's how we have spread the word about uh, this movement. So Um, But we say there's also a time and place for it. Mm -hmm. I think that parents and families are under tremendous pressure um, to support their children in in their growth and development. I think that they they want their kids um, to be uh, positively plugged in to different opportunities. I don't think that um, everybody's thinking, hey, when I get my kid into rec soccer as a kindergartner, you know, this is their pathway to college. Um, I, I do feel that there are some elements um, in society and, and, you know, maybe it's a, you know, a, a byproduct of the, the nature of American life, at least that's at least where I can speak from where there's so much emphasis on work. Um, you know, Europe has the 32-hour work week. They've got the four-day work week. Um, here in the United States, we're continually driven by the jobs we do, the work we do. And part of getting our kids involved in activities is because parents aren't home um, to, to hang out with their kids. Um, so part of it, again, sure, is hey, you know, we want our kids to, to be well-rounded. We want them to be successful. We want our kids to get to college, be able to make a living. Um, there's also that element of, you know, just taking care of them. But here's, this is, this is a key critical point um, because the youth sports piece, for example, I'll, I'll speak to that because um, I've seen that from the inside. You know, it's a multi-billion dollar industry and, and the equity gap is, is ever increasing. Um, and, and this is something that is of such tremendous concern um, because of course um, in our society, there are tremendous inequities. Um, we would see the wealth gap you know, widening over time instead of getting better. Um, and, and in this area of play, in the drive to promote Global School Play Day, equity is at the core. Because what's one thing that we can guarantee at schools uh, that all communities can't necessarily provide their children? That's a safe and structured environment in which to have this kind of experience. And just right here in the Bay Area, just a quick aside, um, there's a a number of nonprofits uh, that are all about helping promote play in communities of need, underserved communities, communities that in the past have been uh, affected by violence, by poverty, Right across the bridge from us in Richmond, California, is one nonprofit called Pogo Park, um, where they have transformed not just the park spaces, but even uh, the the green routes to get between um, the parks, the staffed programs that they have after school and during the summers for kids and adults. 
and a new complex that they're building with a community center alongside another beautiful park that's connected mm-hmm. to kind of a, a greenway, they call it, um, an old historic iron triangle of Richmond. And so, and I'm sharing that because who staffs that organization? The, the family members, the parents in that community, a community where it wasn't safe to send their kids out to go play after school or at night. Um, again, because of the circumstances and they're turning that around in a very holistic kind of way. And they see what a tremendous impact that has on uh, the development of the kids um, in the community who before had to be shut away inside. So back to the piece about structure, again, uh, we're not arguing that uh, any you know adult driven or structured activity is bad. We think they're, they're great, but it's the balance of structure versus that freedom. Absolutely. Uh, I think, yeah, you're right. The pressure, the pressure that can either be self-inflicted or external on families, on kids. Um, they see other kids that are playing sports year round and all of those different pressures can really get to families. Let's finish up by talking about schools. We certainly know the importance of unstructured play in terms of developing self-regulation. We know that one day a year is not necessarily going to have that kind of impact. It certainly raises the awareness. It, it shows evidence of how important that is. You mentioned fewer discipline issues and behavioral, more sort of social competence and pro-social behavior on that day. So if that's the case, then I would imagine that it would be wise for schools to consider how do we make unstructured play or unstructured time a regular part of our school routine. So as far as schools are concerned, what are, let's talk about, we, we, we know the why. So what are some of the most efficient and effective ways that you've seen schools bring unstructured time as a regular part of the schedule, mm-hmm. a regular part of the week, a regular part of the month? What are some of the best models that you've seen out there? I love that question. You know, first of all, um, for anybody listening and never heard about Global School Play Day or you've heard about it and you've never done it, um, start small. And we say it right on our website, uh, globalschoolplayday.com, which is, yeah, we suggest doing uh, uh, all day, one day of the year. Again, it's it's a day to bring awareness. It's a day to bring awareness. Do we think that that's going to, you know, turn turn the narrative around 180 degrees on one day? It won't um, by itself. Um, but the ideas Right. And and the things that happen from those ideas after that. Now, that could be where we get to that. Um, to that real pivotal kind of switch in terms of not just around play, but around the whole mindset of a school Mm -hmm. and the way that education uh, really creates the space for children is that space conducive for um, the most optimal uh, learning growth and development experience or not. And right now we'd argue that we're not there yet. So start small. Start with an hour. Start with 45 minutes. Um, if you're in the secondary, hey, I'm talking to high school educators too. I'm talking to higher education folks as well. A class period um, is is great. Have kids bring in games, music. Um, just kind of back away and you know let them uh, be the drivers. And it's okay to do prep ahead of time to communicate with the families, with the community, to set up uh norms you know we're it's not like a free-for-all we're not going to go up on the roofs here we're going to maintain safety we're going to you know of course um, we're going (laughs) to you know we're 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 there it's it's not some kind of um you know just sort of free-for-all we we do yeah we're just like society right when you walk around society there's rules there too yeah guess what so um so start small yeah look at our website look at click on the link of past participants see far and wide where people uh, are, are participating. We got people in Africa, South America. We got people in Asia. We got people in Southern Europe, Northern Europe, Canada. We got people in the United States of America. We got <laughs> people everywhere all over the place. And let yeah. me say this, that for, I'm gonna give a shout out right now, Mary Hubbard Elementary School in New Jersey you know what they did? They're not only doing Global School Play Day on the first Wednesday of February. They took an idea that we did uh, in 2021. Let's make the first month of school, August 15th to September 15th, Global School Play Month. Let's start the year off strong. Let's be celebratory. Let's wow. get back into this, uh, you know, with a big statement. 
Well, they took that into this year as well. And they had a global school play day within the last month. Um, so that's what we're talking about, which is yeah. this isn't some one-off kind of weird day that's sort of like this kind of pause from business as usual. That's an example of an environment that is seeing the tremendous benefits and they're saying, you know what, we can amplify this and we can incorporate it into our school calendar yeah. um, in a more significant kind of way. But again, start small. That's what happened with uh, my middle school, Hall Middle School. Um, and I was one of the people to come up with the idea. So it's, it's okay to, to take baby steps at first. The research is robust. Uh, it, it's okay to not be familiar with the research because as educators, we can't know everything about everything. And that's just, it has to be fine. But to to pretend, whether in the community, stakeholders, et cetera, to pretend as if unstructured play is just a free for all. It'd probably be important to educate the students too, because we don't want them going to, what'd you do in school today? Nothing. And that would actually be true from their perspective. Uh, so we would actually want them to understand and be, and that way they can monitor, they can self-regulate, they can understand how this is benefiting them as, as, um, as students, as people uh, in, in all of the work that they're, they're doing in school and, and also how they develop uh, as, as a child into adolescence, et cetera. So Eric, we've got two questions left as we finish up. These are questions I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. The first one, you can take this in any direction you want to. Um, but the question is simply, educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? You know, this, this question, Tom, I, uh, was incredibly easy for me to answer because, <laughs> because this is my reality. I didn't have to dig deep for this one. Right. The fact that in education, we continue to have A through F points-based, percentage-based grading practices yeah. that whittle and reduce learning down to a number and a percentage yeah. and a letter is completely unacceptable. Yeah. Um, and when you look at any practice in society that started in the year 1897, which is the case for the current iteration of a hundred point scale, A through F Mount Holyoke college. Um, yeah. There were examples that preceded that, but let's just put 1897 as a pin. Yeah. What other practice around us, what other cultural element around us comes from 1897? Uh, so, that question is the question that that just completely burns me up from the yeah. inside out. Um, I'm proud to say that not only Hall Middle School, where I was principal, but a number of other middle schools right here in Marin County um, and around the country are doing away with A through F scales and implementing standards based learning practices. Um, so that's what keeps me up at night. And I'm talking middle school, high school, and yes, even some elementary schools uh, are using it. Um, and you know what, Tom, I think we may need to come back for another podcast episode <laughs> to talk just about that. Hey, you're preaching to the choir here, uh, Eric. Uh, you know, I mean, that was one of the reasons I, I did the workshop in, in Marin County that time. And uh, yeah, I can, I mean, that could be another whole nother conversation we have as we go along. All right, let's finish up here. Um, little on a lighter note, um, I love food. You live in the Bay Area, uh, particularly you you live specifically, I should say, you live in uh, Corte Madera, California. So the question I want to know is, Eric, where's the best place to eat in Corte Madero, Madera? Sorry, um, the best hidden gem, the hole in the wall, just that place that uh, is local, where the food is tremendous. And it's that little secret that all the locals know. Mm -hmm. and absolutely. And, you know, I uh, I love this question, too. Um, also a foodie here, and uh, the Bay Area is a is a huge oh, tableau uh, of culinary from you know hole in the walls to the uh, the five Michelin stars. Yeah, uh, but I'm going to take us just right over the bridge from okay. from Madera over to my native East Bay, um, uh, and in Berkeley, California, is is a, a Mexican restaurant um, called Picante, which has been there for decades. Um, uh, is right down the street from where I grew up. And it's just wonderful food, just beautiful, um, you know, great. There's, uh, you know, uh, everything, you know, from burritos to uh, mancha manteles is, um, you know, a chicken and sort of the, the drippy mole sauce 
you know, they have um, great stuff there, you know, for, for kids, desserts, they got, you know, um, things for the adult crowd too, um, on the beverage end of things. And so, um, and then West Berkeley, tons of fun, um, right there on Gilman, uh, Avenue, um, just a lot of fun things to go walk around and explore. So it's just a short jaunt, um, from, Uh, lovely Marin County over there. So next time anybody's over uh, this way, head to Picante. Picante. I uh, certainly have, uh, I love Berkeley. Uh, My uh, ex-brother-in-law now played football at Cal and uh, I sort of, I went to Cal, went to a Cal Stanford game back in 1980 and uh, it was mesmerizing. I'd never been to any sporting event like that in my life and it, it made me want to go to college and play sports and it it had me fall in love with Berkeley and I'm still um, a low key Cal bears fan. I uh, just, I can't help myself. I think Berkeley is a spectacular setting. And now I've got two places uh, in, in, in Berkeley where uh, we can, where I can go to eat when I, when I'm there uh, listeners, you can follow Eric certainly on Twitter. Uh, the Twitter handle for Eric is at EC Sable. Uh, the Instagram, the handle is at eSable. Eric is on LinkedIn. Also, uh, www.ericsable.com is the website. Um, Eric, any other places for Global School uh, Play Day? Any other handles, uh, websites you want to let listeners know about? Absolutely. I appreciate it. So our website is uh, www.globalschoolplayday.com. You can log on, read about how to participate. Um, click on links to show past participants, click on the link for Dr. Gray's Ted talk, um, other press releases and media that we've gotten as well over the years. Um, and, uh, just a great resource to, to kind of dive into. Um, uh, and also too, most importantly, you can click on that link that says register. Now, um, you fill out a simple questionnaire free of charge and you will sign up your classroom school or district. Um, for the next Global School Play Day, which is on February 1st of 2023. Also, too, we're on Twitter at GS Play Day, um, as well as Instagram, GS Play Day. I really encourage everyone to um, check us out, give us a follow, um, and also, too, connect with others. Um, when you click on a link uh, to show the past participants, you'll see um, they'll often share their Twitter handles, their school websites, um, reach out to them, ask them how they did it. Hey, maybe it's somebody in your county, somebody in your state. Um, check them out. Love it. Love it. Thanks, Eric. Um, great to see you, my friend. Uh, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. Oh, um, again, on behalf of the whole team, thank you, Tom, for all your work. And, uh, we're just really excited to really expand, uh, the message. Um, we just know that the kids and adults deserve it. And we'll uh, hopefully see uh, the numbers grow Um, again, building uh, momentum um, Mm -hmm. towards greater wellness and and we'd argue deeper learning um, and better outcomes for all. Fantastic. Well, truly having a global impact. So congratulations on that. Thank you very much. Great to see you. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to share a little of why I'm rethinking the widely held stance against group grades. Now the widely held position about group grades is, of course, that an individual student's achievement level should be that of the individual student's achievement level, and that any individual uh, influence from other group members, whether it be from members not carrying their weight or from the student being carried by the group or anything like that, all of those influences be factored out of grade determination. Now my rethinking is not entirely new to me, but it is sourced and has been rekindled from two places, and it has me thinking that there might be a finite place for group results in an individual student's report in whatever form that might take on. Now, I want to emphasize the finite part, as I'm not at all advocating that all student achievement be viewed through the lens of the collective. I still think, you know, of individual achievement levels are important and and disproportionately would form a part of a student's report. It'd be the most prominent part. But what I am saying is that there may be a finite place for collective results as part of an individual student's grade or level or performance. 
And I also want to say that what I'm about to say is a think aloud. So I do reserve the right to change my mind, okay? But here goes. First, my my rethinking comes from the increasing emphasis on collaboration as an essential 21st century competency. That our students need to learn to be more collaborative as the world, you know, so-called shrinks and becomes more interconnected. But collaboration doesn't occur in a vacuum in any sense, right? My ability to collaborate is not entirely independent of who I'm collaborating with, both socially and academically. Socially, of course, because even though we might think of collaboration as a kind of academic competency, especially when we think of collaborative problem solving, it really is a social interaction. And any social interaction is a back and forth. So my ability to engage socially with the group will be impacted by the group, and my social contributions will impact others in the group and their ability to collaborate in a social sense, right? It's the result of all of us, not just one of us. I also think it's an authentic experience to have a collaborative team responsible for a collective results, right? Because sports teams experience this, dance teams, bands, etc. Yes, each person has to pull their weight, but the result is presented to the collective. You won or you lost as a team. I just think that piece is valuable for students to experience if they have it. Not everyone plays on a team. Not everyone plays in the band. Not everyone dances or whatever. So giving them an experience where they are collectively responsible for the result is important. So the first source for me in rethinking this notion of group grades is the competency of collaboration. Now, the second source of my rethinking comes from Zaretta Hammond, who was on the podcast last June. One thing that really stood out for me in her book, Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain, was her emphasis on using cultural archetypes. That rather than trying to address any and all specific cultures in the school, which would be nearly impossible when, you, when schools have, are, are, are increasingly diverse, see, uh, her suggestion is that we use cultural archetypes as a way of guiding our culturally responsive work. Those cultural archetypes uh, cut across a sort of, I, I think of them sort of as an X and Y axis, right? So if you say on the X axis, we go from one end to the other, we have cultures that honor the written tradition and those that honor the oral tradition. And along the Y axis, I suppose, we might say that there are cultures that emphasize the individual versus those cultures that, that honor and emphasize the collective. So if you think about how schools have been traditionally constructed and focused around assessment, you'll see that they tend to be drawn to the individual and the written tradition. That is certainly a very Eurocentric view of school, a very Eurocentric mindset. So it actually becomes quite easy to see how someone whose cultural lens uh, leans toward the collective or toward the oral tradition might feel marginalized or even otherized within a school setting because that's not the norm in terms of what we do. So when you use those cultural archetypes, you can offer a range of experiences, right? So there's the individual and the written tradition, the individual and the oral tradition, there's the collective and the written tradition, there's the collective and the oral tradition, right? So at least if we were to be mindful of those four combinations, I think we would stand a better chance of being more culturally responsive or culturally attentive or culturally expansive or however you want to phrase that. So back to the notion of group grades. So then to honor the notion of the collective and cultures that emphasize contribution to the collective, that standing out as an individual is, is frowned upon, there may be some finite places in schools where the contribution is not just my individual contribution, but it is my contribution to the collective that leads to a singular collective outcome that we all have to own, regardless of our individual contribution or individual prowess. Not everything, of course, but in some finite way, can we create the opportunity for this and to make it meaningful and to make it substantive? Can we have a space for group results and or quote unquote group grades? I don't know, maybe, maybe we can. Maybe it's within some group-based inquiry project or a problem-based project where we as a collective have to come up with a viable and plausible solution. Some kind of experience where you are truly a team, a team that not only needs and relies on one another, but one where we all share the responsibility of the result. 
And again, I'm thinking of a very definitive and finite place with this. It's not a pendulum swing because that's not helpful either. If we trade the individual for the collective, then we're just trading one for the other. So that's why I actually like to use the word culturally expansive as a way of being more expansive and inclusive it, as, to, to kind of avoid this either-or proposition. Now that collective result of the team could be presented in the written tradition, or, or I might just say something tangible uh, to be less prescriptive, or it may be presented in the oral tradition, which could also include you know, telling the story behind the solution or telling the story of what led to the group and how they came to consensus on what the most viable solution was or something like that. Something where the group is truly accountable to the collective more than the individual. Trying to help students see that the whole notion of, well, I did my part, is not always the best way to approach a collective effort. It isn't just trying to stand in isolation and stand out and say, well, I did my thing and you didn't do yours. Yes, ideally, we would want every individual to contribute to the best of their ability and maybe even equally. But I think when you are responsive to the collective, it's not so much about the individual parts as it is about the collective outcome and that we all focus on how we get the job done. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> maybe I change my mind tomorrow. I, I, I don't really think I will, though. Because I'm of the mindset that we can be culturally expansive on the periphery and be superficially responsive, if you will. But until our responsiveness cuts to the core of their learning and therefore cuts to the core of their assessment, I'll still think we have a long way to go. For me, the bigger picture is to always be willing to question my thoughts, question my perspective, or question my long-held beliefs. Like we talked a little bit about last week. I don't want my thoughts and my theories to become my identity. So I think we have to be willing to interrogate our ways of thinking to see if they still hold or if an evolution in thinking is necessary. If we're never willing to reconsider our practices and be open to evolving, we will never grow and never deepen our understanding of how we can reshape our assessment practices to be as inclusive as possible. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, please email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com, if you've got questions for Assessment Corner, or you have any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast. And a reminder, check the show notes for the link for the Grading from the Inside Out training coming up in December. Next week, my guest will be Janine Letford. Janine is the author of Seven Gems of Intercultural Creativity, so that is going to be our focus for our conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course, but a rating and review on any platform will help grow the podcast's reach. If you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone.